My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team, and we are finishing a series today. It's on the book of Titus. We've been going three weeks, three chapters. We've been going through this book of Titus. The series has been called Pagan Love. Uh, very simply, the reality that um, for those who are outside of the realm of God's love, outside the faith, uh, God loves them. God loves everybody. And you and I, all of us, no matter where you are, uh, in terms of if you're a Christ follower today, there was a day when you were far from his love. God loved you then. And uh, that's the reality. That's what we want to go after. Um, uh, so if you want to grab your notes out of your handout. Um, and so you can follow along with us today. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Titus. We're in chapter three. Um, if you would like to follow along, but you don't bring your, you didn't have your Bible, uh, you can grab the one in the seat back in front of you. And if you need a Bible, you can take that Bible. You can steal the teal. That's our gift to you. Okay. Uh, I want to begin just by talking about the definition of a word you might have heard before. It's the word agoraphobia. And the, the word agoraphobia, it's, a, it's a, uh, an anxiety disorder. And the definition is there is a fear of phobia of wide open spaces, crowds, or uncontrolled social conditions. I read this week that in severe cases, it manifests itself as a fear of going outside of one's safe place. Now, if you or anybody you know is legitimately wrestling with this disorder, I want you to know that my pastor's heart goes out to you. I'm so sorry. We want to be a resource and uh, just a comfort to you as you walk that road. Obviously, that would be a very difficult place to be. However, spiritually, I think this is an affliction that hits church people and churches all over the place. And what it looks like when agoraphobia hits a church context, it looks like everybody feels very at home inside of a community. And they feel very safe inside of that community. And there's a, a lot of love and affirmation and conversation that all makes sense within that community. And it just is insidious how a phobia creeps in and it becomes a fear of going outside of the community. And a fear of bringing love outside of the community. And a fear of sharing the grace of Jesus Christ outside of that community. And friends, as a church, if you're just checking this whole thing out at Overlake, you need to know our commitment is that Overlake is never guilty of being smitten with that disease. Right? That we will never have spiritual agoraphobia because God loves everybody. And when we were far from God, He loved us and He brought us into the center of His love. And we want to take that love everywhere we go outside of these four walls. Okay? So that's what the whole thing is about. Um, we're going to go through chapter three. And Paul starts, he's talking to Timothy, and he essentially begins by saying, Good news makes good citizens. And it seems like a left turn. It's really not a left turn. Titus 3.1 says, Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. And the recognition here and elsewhere in Scripture is very simple, that when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you become a person with dual citizenship. 
And you are citizens of God's kingdom and you're citizens of an earthly realm. And what the grace of Jesus Christ does in your life is it makes you a good citizen of both places. And so you're going to be a good citizen in God's kingdom and you're going to be a good citizen in an earthly realm. And we're to follow and we're to submit the leaders, the authority that God has uh, established here um, to be law abiding when the laws are not in conflict with God's call. And so we obey the commands of governing authorities because we love and we worship Jesus and because we see in scripture that he's the one who establishes the governing authorities in this world. Uh, Paul says in Romans 13:1, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. And so again, uh, we uh, are to be good citizens of this earthly realm of God's kingdom when the earthly realm is uh, directly against God's kingdom. When it uh, seeks to um, uh, it seeks to oppress, when there's injustice that is the norm, uh, the people who are citizens of God's kingdom routinely come in and they bring God's kingdom with them into this earthly kingdom. And a couple of examples out of the Wesleyan movement. Uh, that was uh, men and women who were absolutely committed to being great citizens of God's kingdom. They recognized that slavery was an evil in this kingdom. Even though it was legal, it was an evil. And so they came against that and they abolished slavery. That Wilberforce came out of that movement. Uh, you look at uh, that same movement, the Wesleyan movement, and there were um, horrific child um, labor realities. And it was all legal. And you could work a a 10-year-old kid from dawn till far after dusk. And you could pay them nothing. And it was all legal. And again, the people of God, God's kingdom, came against that. And that's when the child labor uh, laws were changed and, and child labor was abolished. So you recognize that there are these situations where people who are uh, citizens of God's kingdom have to listen to God and follow God first and foremost. And we're to be great citizens in this earthly realm. But when this earthly realm comes against being a citizen of God's kingdom, then we seek to bring God's kingdom into the here and now. Uh, you, You can never legislate morality. And so we don't seek to do that. And we don't seek to make laws that um, would force a person uh, to have to, say, follow Jesus. Or we never, we never try to go into that realm at all because this is faith that's completely voluntary. However, I, I love what Martin Luther King Jr. said once. I'll just read that. This is a Mike Howerton paraphrase. But essentially what Martin Luther King Jr. said is, you can't write a law that will make somebody love me. But you can write a law that will prevent somebody from lynching me. And I'd be thankful for that. All right. And so as citizens of God's kingdom, we seek to go after that kind of a reality where we seek to bring God's kingdom into the here and now where the kingdom of this world comes against it. So, again, the idea that good news makes good citizens. And then Paul says... They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. So that word slander, it could also be translated gossip. The idea of sharing news that's not yours to share, especially juicy tidbits, bad news, etc. And and the, the thing about slander, the thing about gossip is so often it's just not true. 
or it's just one person's take on something and you're not involved, you're secondhand, and so you share stuff and suddenly you're guilty and, 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 and it was just fun for you. Some, somehow there's just this desire in our hearts to be drawn towards the juiciest, right? The, the dirtiest bits of, of gossip and slander so that we can share. And you probably know this, that some people will believe anything if it's whispered to them, right? That there's just this natural draw for us to, to believe the dirt. Um, I've also heard it said that you can't believe anything you hear today, but you can retweet it. And we see that happen uh, often as well. So Paul says, they must not slander or gossip. And then it says they must be gentle and show true humility to everyone, right? Uh, true humility, not false humility, but the idea of, of true humility. And true humility doesn't mean that you pretend that you're no good, that you pretend that you don't have any skills or talents. That's not it. True humility is not thinking um, less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less, and, and the reality is what we want to go after, true humility is displayed in the Gospels by the person of John, the baptizer. Because when John, who has this vibrant ministry going, when John sees Jesus across the way, he, he looks at Jesus and he points to him and he says, I must decrease so that he can increase. That's true humility. That, that we think of ourselves less so that we can make much of God. And we think less uh, or of ourselves less so we can think more about God and about the things that he is about, the things that he's calling us to. And I, I would just say that in this issue of true humility, true humility in Proverbs, it says true humility and fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this is the foundation for being wise in this world. I would also argue true humility is the foundation of worship. Because when we're truly humble, we take our eyes off of ourselves. And we put our eyes on, on Jesus Christ and we worship him. So uh, when it comes to worship, I would love to take just a few minutes and introduce you to John Stearns, our worship pastor. Would you please welcome him? John, come on up. We'll ask you a couple questions. All right, brother. Come on over. Why don't you begin, John, by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, um... I grew up in a small town in Southern California. It's not really what you think of when you think of Southern California. It was the desert. Um, I was the youngest of three boys and was fortunate enough to be a part of a family where <clears throat> my folks wanted to raise us in the ways of the Lord. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, so me and my brothers, we were involved in tons of church activities, tons of sports. But there was always one thing that kept surfacing in my life and it was my passion for music so my folks they decided to get me involved in some voice lessons um to get me involved in some music lessons so i started that at a real young age and shortly after that i started joining kids choirs youth choirs and then eventually uh, joined a traveling group called the uh, young americans it's an international touring group and so did that right out of high school um, was on the road with them for about four years, <clears throat> and just an amazing opportunity. But when I was there, you know, I was using my gifts to to help people connect and to help people feel happy. And it wasn't a, a Christian organization, but God, He spoke to me and He said, "I have more for you than this." And so I left that day when I heard that, and I'm like, "Okay." So 
I left the group and my family had been attending Saddleback Church in Orange County. And they got real connected there. They said, John, you got to come check this place out. So I left everything I knew about singing and performing and went to this church. Well, they were having vocal auditions that day, you know, or not that day, but they announced it. And so I thought, okay, Lord, this is it. This is where you're calling me to. And so I'm all pumped. I'm like, yes, I heard from God. It's going to happen. Here we go. So I walked in the audition, you know, and sang my heart out. I thought I nailed it. And I got a phone call <laughs> like a week later saying, yeah, not so much. And I was, I was totally bummed. Like I heard from God. I went the audition. He, he lined it up for me and I didn't make it. <laughs> so they offered me a position in the choir and the lady that was on the other end, her name's Charlotte Huntington. And she says, you know, you didn't make the vocal teams, but we would love to have you in the choir. And I said, Charlotte, I am not um, a choir singer. I'm a microphone singer. You know, I'm a soloist. <laughs> I did not have the same path as John the Baptist. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I was resistant, but God really, he started to speak to my heart. And I finally realized that he didn't need to use me to further his kingdom. And so that was a big thing to swallow. So I joined the choir. Um, I served in it for eight months and through many great people who taught me what it meant to humble myself. I, I realized that, um, it's not about me. It's, it's about serving and it's not about the lead position. So that's a little bit of my music background and how I got started. As you went from that place of starting in the choir, how did you move from that place to being a worship leader at Saddleback? Well, uh, once I realized it wasn't all about me, <laughs> I, you know, served in that capacity in the choir and, um, God, he began to promote me in a huge way. Um, and showed me a lot of favor because of my heart was in the right place and started, you know, singing solos at the church. Um, and then this one guy, his name's Chris Tafala. He's the, uh, was the worship pastor for the uh, college ministry crave, which actually Mike knows him. And he asked me to fill in for him one time. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm not a worship leader. I'm a singer. <laughs> and he goes, no, you're, you're a worship leader. You're, you're a worshiper. And so you know, he equipped me, he trained me a little bit, and then I began filling in for him. And then he eventually said, this is yours. You know, God's calling you to this. So I led there for a couple years. I was filling in at the main campus. And then uh, a guy that, by the name of Aaron Kerr was launching another Saddleback campus. And I went on staff full time in, in 2008. So um, that's kind of how it all started. Yeah. John, tell us a little bit. What are you excited about here at Overlake? Well, I've been here three times, um, and I've always gotten this sense when I'm talking to people out in the mallway or just the worship team that there is something, something big's happening here. And I'm excited because I know that God is calling me here. It's been a five-month process, and it's been confirmed through multiple things. Um, so I'm excited walking into that, knowing that this is where I'm supposed to be, and I think that this church is ready to kind of go to the next level as far as worship and what, what that looks like. So that really excites me. And, you know, to put my roots here, to start a family someday, all that stuff. <laughs> John is single. Uh, oh, no. uh, I went there. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and he's accepting applications. <laughs> yeah. Um, John, tell us a little bit about when you say you go into the next level in worship here at Overlake, what are some of the things that you feel God has uniquely gifted and called you to do from a leadership perspective? What are some things that you're excited about as you begin to lead here at Overlake? Um, one of the first things that excites me is, you know, seeing this team be without a head worship leader for five months, they really haven't missed a beat. And there's such quality people that have already been serving here. So that really excites me. Um, I'm excited about the hunger that's in this, that's in this congregation that to um, just want more of God's spirit, want more of what, what he's about and, you know, being a part of that. Um, I'm really excited to start a writing community because I know that there's people in these seats that have a passion for writing music, but it just hasn't been tapped into yet. So starting that, you know, I'm excited about eventually starting a choir where we can um, use that as a form of worship and have that as an element of our Sunday services. So there's so many things in my mind that I am excited about. It's just, okay, what's first? What's <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Hey, can we just thank John? John, thank you. We love you. All right. Thanks, excited to worship with you. And I do want you to know that John has told me that he would be happy to um, be invited over to your house for dinner at any point uh, if you'd like to get to know him. And, and if you do spend time with him uh, one-on-one, if you just grab him in the mall way or you just have an interaction with him, uh, you'll just see this is a guy who he, he is humble and he's gentle and his heart is wide open for worship. And we are very, very excited to, to continue the journey with you, bro. Um, if you want to continue along in your notes, you see that uh, Paul says, but there's more. There's more than just the good news making us good citizens. He says the good news ha- has met us on the outside. So he, he begins by very clearly articulating where we were when God's love invaded our lives. And again, this is why the, the series is called Pagan Love, because when we were on the outside, God met us. He says, once... We, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy. We hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of His grace, He declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Friends, this passage is so rich and there is so much meat in it that what I want to do is I want to kind of go line by line through it. So if you want to keep referencing this passage of scripture, we're just going to pick it apart a little bit. Uh, He begins by reminding us where we were. He says, we were the ones who were foolish and disobedient. We were the ones who were misled, right? We believed false things. We, We had a false worldview, uh, our philosophy of the world of life, it, it was misled and our confidence was misplaced. We were slaves to lusts and pleasures. We hated each other. Where we were, he says, we were on the outside of God's love, right? That's where we were. But God is our savior. 
he says, um, it was his plan to shower his love on those who were far from him. The scripture says he revealed kindness to those who were on the outside. He saved us. And again, who did, who did he save? He saved us. We who were outside. We who were pagans and far from him. We who were foolish and disobedient. That's where we were when he graced us. When he saved us. God loved us before we ever thought to love him. And it raises a question. Do you love people before they love God? Or do you love people... Let me make it more personal. Do you love people before they love you? Right? Because um, when I think about it in that context, I just want you to know I'm so thankful that God loves bigger than me. I am so thankful that God loves better than me. That, that he, he doesn't wait till somebody turns to him in order to begin to love them. He loves them even while we are far from him. Because that's where I was. I was unlovable. And that's where you were too. And in that context, he saved us and he loved us. And then what Paul says is he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Interesting. The question is, why did God save you? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, why did he save you? Well, it wasn't because of your righteousness. And it wasn't because of my righteousness. In fact, the Bible says that on our own, without God's help, our righteousness is like dirty laundry. He's that excited about our righteousness without him. Okay? Uh, it's, It's not... Uh, he's not excited about our righteousness. That's not why he chooses to save us. And it's not only not about your righteousness in the past, it's not even about the righteous things that you might one day do, right? God is not investing in you like uh, like a venture capitalist buys a fixer-upper in hopes that the market's going to turn around, right? he's not thinking, oh, I'll invest in you now because maybe someday you'll do something good and then you'll be worth my love. That's not it either. It's not about our righteousness. The scripture tells us why. It's not about our righteousness. He says, it's about his mercy. It's about his mercy poured out on us. Undeserved. We don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his love. He chooses to offer us mercy. And not just once. The Bible says his mercy is new every morning. Every morning he has fresh mercy. He has new love that he's ready to pour out on us. Lavishly shower us with his love. We don't deserve it. Friends, when was the last time you just fell on your face before God and thanked him for his mercy in your life? When was the last time you just cried out to heaven saying, I know I don't deserve it, but thank you for caring for me the way you do. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for gracing me. Thank you for blessing me. When was the last time that that was your heart, humble before the Lord, where you just worshiped him for his mercy, right? You you just realized it wasn't about you earning his love at all because he's already poured it out on you. And then the Bible says, he washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. All right, let's pick that apart. He washed away our sins. This is, uh, this is the power of the cross, right? Your sins are washed away. And what that means is, the very first time you ever emitted a rebel yell in disobedience as a terrible two-year-old, right? he forgave that. 
and he forgave every sin since, even up to the sin you committed on the drive here, which I assume to be the sin of pride because you're all good drivers. Uh, forgive that. And he forgives all of the future sins, even to the, the sin, the very last one you'll ever commit uh, in, your, in your dying day, you know. Every single sin along the way, he washes them clean. And though your sins are scarlet, my sins are scarlet, the Bible says, he makes them white as snow. And he washes us clean. And then he says, talks about the Holy Spirit. He gives us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Some of your translations, if you're reading out of another translation, it might say, through the washing of regeneration and renewal. And that, we, we translate that new birth and new life. The washing, regeneration and renewal, right? This is through God's spirit. Because when you say yes to a relationship of love with God, you place your trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that his spirit joins your spirit and he dwells within you. That you are a temple of God. And that he works in your life and he washes you, cleanses you, he regenerates you, right? Um, that's a new birth. We talk about that. Um, Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. That's where we get the idea of being born again, right? That, that it's, we're being born by God's spirit, made new, this new birth and new life. We're being renewed every day, being made new. And I just want to say a word about that. I am so thankful. That God is making us new every day because honestly, I feel like I'm getting old every day. I feel like I am, I'm being weathered every day. Like I'm, you know, the years are taking hits on me and, and it's just, uh, I've, I've been waking up lately and I, I get out of bed and I go into the bathroom. I look in the mirror and I'm like, where did that old guy come from? I got wrinkles everywhere. My eyes are all smushed down. My hair, you know, rooster, slightly different than it looks now. And like, uh, it, it's just, um, I, what has happened, right? And then I, I was rummaging around the medicine cabinet a couple weeks ago. I noticed that my wife has this lotion. And I, I look at the lotion. It's, it's called age-defying lotion. And on it, it says, it, it, I kid you not, it says, um, it's, it's for rejuvenation and renewal. I thought, just what the Holy Spirit promises, right there in the, in the lotion. And, and I, I may have used this lotion two or three times this week. And it gave me teenage face, by which I mean I got pimples and, uh, and I still looked old. And, uh, and, and so I, I thought, you know what? There is no truth in advertising in this lotion. It does not do what it says that it will do. However, I do want you to understand that the Holy Spirit does exactly what he says he'll do. And that he renews us. He rejuvenates us. I mean, I'm not talking about this like God is vitamin water. Okay. I'm telling you that in your inmost parts, God does a work and he cleanses us daily and he puts us back together. And where we get beaten down, God builds us up and where we feel defeated, God brings victory. And, and God is at work inside of us. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, he loves us and daily he works within us. Paul talks about it in second Corinthians. 416. He says, that's why we never give up. 
Some of you are right there on the edge. You feel like giving up. Don't do it. We never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Every day, rejuvenation. Every day, revitalization. Every day, renewal through the Holy Spirit of God. Do you need renewal today? I bet you do. And I do too. Every single one of us, we can simply invite the Holy Spirit of God to do his work. We can allow him to rejuvenate and to renew, to wash us and to give us his new life today. And the question is, well, how does God do all of this salvation stuff? Uh, The next line is, he generously poured out the spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's all through Jesus Christ that this salvation stuff happens. And that's why at Overlake, we make a really big deal about Jesus. We talk about Jesus all the time. Every single week, we want to focus on Jesus because it is through Jesus that we now have this, this bridge built between a sinful man and sinless God. And Jesus Christ on the cross, he pays the penalty for all of our sin. And he cleanses us and he forgives us. In addition to his mercy, in addition to God's spirit living within us, daily renewing us and regenerating us, God, through Jesus Christ, the Bible says, declares us righteous. He declares us righteous. Now, I don't know if you think that about yourself. You look at yourself in the mirror, righteous. Probably not. But you know what? There's only one person whose opinion matters. And it's not your opinion. It's not your spouse's opinion. It's not your buddy's opinion. When I say your opinion doesn't matter, I mean, it weighs in, of course. And obviously, it's a part of the equation. But you know what? In the book of 1 John, John writes that we can have confidence even when our hearts condemn us. So there'll be times when your heart condemns you. When, when you look at yourself and you go, I, I'm not righteous. How could, how could I be righteous? A righteous person wouldn't be tempted by that. A righteous person wouldn't stumble again into that. A righteous person wouldn't lose their temper like that. A righteous person wouldn't snap at their kids like that. Your opinion doesn't matter. God's opinion is the one that matters. And what this word says is that it's because of his grace, he declares you righteous. I just want to tell you, absolutely, as clearly as I can, if God calls you righteous, no one else's opinion matters. God calls you righteous, not because of your righteousness, this passage says, but because of his grace. So his grace declares us righteous. My own righteousness is like filthy rags, but God declares me righteous. And that's why, friends, you've heard me say this before, but if we stand at all, we stand knee-deep in God's grace. We can never get beyond it. It's his grace that declares us righteous. Then it says, and he gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Confidence that we will inherit eternal life. So... He gives us all of this stuff, the the forgiveness of our sins and the rejuvenation and the renewal. He puts the Holy Spirit in our lives. All of this is grace through Jesus Christ. And we can stand now knee deep in grace and we can be changed because of his love. All of this and the confidence of eternity. You know, reading through this passage, it's almost like one of those ridiculous commercials on TV. 
They talk about how many knives you can buy for $9.99 and how they'll cut through a penny. And, uh, you know, you can saw a cannon half and a tomato and, you know, all this stuff. And, but wait, there's more, right? But wait, there's more. You get all of this good stuff, all of these blessings and all of this gift. And you get confidence of eternity. I mean, that's amazing to me. And you know why it's amazing? Because I've talked with many of you. And I've been in ministry for 20 years, and I know there are so many people who lack the assurance that when this life ends, there's a better life to come. I've talked to so many people who lack the assurance. And maybe it's, it's folks who have lost loved ones, dear to you, a spouse or, or a dear friend or a, or a son or a daughter. And so you, you, you wonder, can I be confident that my loved one was in heaven? Right. Uh, or uh, or you yourself, you go through maybe seasons of depression, seasons of doubt, you, a dark night of the soul. Maybe you go through um, you're a person who really wrestles hard with an addiction. You have this compulsive personality and, and, and you just keep stumbling into the same stuff again and again. And you just wonder, is, is it even possible? Can I have confidence that when I die? I'll be able to be with God in heaven and, and all this stuff will fade away and, and I'll be who I, who I am. I'll, I'll, I'll be who God sees me as. Can I be confident of that? And the scripture says yes. Through Jesus Christ, yes. You placed your trust in him? Absolutely yes. You can have confidence that when this life is over, God will invite you with him into the next life. And I just want to say very clearly, it is all a gift It is absolutely a gift from God. All of this salvation is on the God side of the equation. He's got the plan, and he's got the power, and he's got Christ on the cross to take away sin, and he's got the Holy Spirit invested in your life. And all of this is on the God side of the equation. And if you don't have confidence today, it's because you've never done anything on your side of the equation. You've never received his gift. That's all you have to do. God offers the gift. That's his stuff. You receive it. That's yours. And if you've never received the gift of salvation, if you've never received all this Paul's talking about, then I want to urge you, do it today. Do it today. You don't have to wait any longer. This is a gift. And you say, well, how do you receive this gift, Mike? What's, What's it all about? If I were to offer you a gift and I say, hey, this gift is for you. What would you have to do to receive it? You just have to come get it, right? I mean, you just have to take it. You, you, you can't try to pay for it. You don't, uh, there's no negotiating. You, you, just, you just receive it. To illustrate this, I, I asked the guys, bring in some Top Pot Donuts today. Do you guys know what Top Pot Donuts are? Apparently, these are the hottest donuts in Seattle. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Top Pot fan, but maybe I will be after today. Um, so we have a dozen Top Pot Donuts here. I don't know if we can, can we get a camera angle on that? Delicious. Oh, look at that. Oh, yes. Delicious. Okay. So just out of curiosity, anybody here want a top pot donut? Anybody? A couple guys? Yeah. Deb, you want to come up and grab a donut? Okay. Now I'm offering a gift. Now notice, you guys, this is super scientific. Notice, which one would you like? Do you want the spring? You know what? If I gave, would you like them all? One is plenty. One is plenty? Yes. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Thank you Deb. Hey, can we give her a hand? That's like a little... That was a perfect object lesson. Now, now I offered them all. She just wanted one. And, and I get it because they're donuts, right? And who knows? Tub of lard in each donut. 
But this is a gift. Now, I've got 11 donuts left. Does anybody want 11 donuts? Anybody? Come on up. Yeah, come on. What does it take for him to get 11 donuts? Watch. I, I, I don't want you to miss this. He comes, all right? He has a heart that's willing to accept the gift. I offer the gift. Here you go, bro. Use them well. Enjoy them. The gift is his, right? And, and it's his, and he gets to enjoy the gift, and he gets to allow the gift to nourish his body, right? And when it comes to the gift that God's offering you, you simply receive it. You accept, you have a willingness in your heart, God, I, I want that. I want you in my life. I, I, I want to have the assurance of salvation. I, I want to be forgiven of my junk. I want to, I want to walk in a way that is filled with integrity and, and honor. And, and I just want you. I want your, your spirit in my life. And you simply say, yeah, I, I want that. I, I receive that gift. And you step across the line and you place your trust in Jesus Christ. You receive his gift. You allow him to fill you. You allow the spirit to nourish you and renew you and rejuvenate you. But you simply receive. And I I pray that if you've ever uh, thought about it but never have done it, that today would be the day that you would decide, you know what, that's what I want to do. I want to see. There's no big show. Right? There's no big, there's no, you don't have to recite anything specific. There's no magic prayer. Uh, It's simply you saying honestly and humbly to Jesus, Jesus, I accept you. I believe in you. I want you in my life. Okay. And that's what Paul talks about. He, he, he talks about uh, this good news in chapter 1. He talks about this good news in chapter 2. And then he talks about this good news in chapter 3, which begs the question, I put it on your outline, is the good news important? Like, is the grace of Jesus Christ important? Does it have any weight? Does it have any bearing? Uh, uh, is it important? The answer undoubtedly for Paul to this young preacher, this church planter named Titus, the answer is yes, it's important. It's so important that in a little three-chapter book, I'm going to mention it three different times. It's so important that I want you as this church planter in charge of a couple churches, I want you to make the good news the cornerstone. I want you to make it the backbone of everything that's going on. I want you to talk about the good news and preach the good news and make sure that the good news impacts and changes and transforms lives. Yes, to Paul, the good news is important. The question I want to ask this morning is, is it important to you? Like, does it matter in your life? It's driving Paul. It's determining everything that Paul does. It's shaping Titus and this young pastor's churches but doesn't mean anything in your life. Like when you go to your neighborhood, when you go to your classroom, when you go to your workplace, is the good news important to you? Are you living in such a way that the grace of Jesus Christ is so real to you that others just sense it? They just smell it. They can just tell. You've been eating top pot donuts, haven't you? Right? Like they can just tell it's coming out of your pores, the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. Is it important? Because that's what happens when grace transforms us. That yes, we receive it and we don't deserve it, but we accept it into our lives and then it begins to do its work. 
And it starts to impact those around us. In fact, that's the next fill in here is that good news produces good works. And Paul talks about this often. I, I put three verses here uh, in a row. These are all three from Titus chapter 3, 1, 8, and 14. Paul writes, they should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. Next verse, 8. There's a, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Okay, so three times in one chapter, Paul tells us we need to be doing good. We need to make sure that the grace of Jesus Christ poured out on us because of his mercy. When we were far from him, he loved us. We need to to make sure that that truth so revolutionizes us that our lives are defined by doing good. That we take this idea of loving others, uh, we take it as far as we can. And especially those who are outside God's love, especially those who are far from Him, we want to love them in, in, in such a way that they won't be far from Him for long. Because they'll see how real His love is through the way that we love others. And I say this, I want to make sure I'm absolutely crystal clear. We do not do good works to earn our salvation. Right? We don't do good things in order to be saved. We are saved so that we might do good works. It's completely upside down. We are saved. We've received the grace of God. Now we're free to go and to take that love into every context that God places us. Our workplace, our classroom, our neighborhood, wherever it is that God calls us to be. That's where we take this idea of doing good works because he has so loved us. Now we want to take that love wherever we go. So please, don't miss this. Uh, We are not trying to somehow please God. No, he's already poured out his pleasure and his favor on us. But now what we do is we simply communicate that everywhere we go. And then to achieve this end, uh, Paul concludes his letter. He says, I'm planning to send either Artemis or Titius to you. As soon as one of them arrives, do your best to meet me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to stay there for the winter. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos with their trip. See that they are given everything they need. Everybody here sends greetings. Please give my greetings to all the believers, all who love us. May God's grace be with you all. And what we have at the end here is just insight into a church planting model. And the insight is that here's Paul, who's planted multiple churches. He's raised up multiple leaders. He's providing support and care to a church planter on the field. And he's doing this by sending resources, in this case, human resources, to Titus on the island of Crete. And so here are four guys that he's going to send. And these four guys, they're mentioned in other places in the Gospels, or in the, not in the Gospels, but in the New Testament. And and Paul's sending these human resources to give Titus a break, right? So, So like Apollos is a great teacher. So he'll come in, he'll take a circuit of teaching. Titus will take a break. He'll get to come be with Paul, uh, continue that mentorship and that learning discipleship process. Uh, these other guys, Zenus the lawyer, maybe he's coming with some funds. Maybe he's coming with some legal counsel, but he's going to bring what he has to support the church work there. 
Uh, all of this falls under the realm of church planting. And I want you to know, Overlake, uh, we are doing a great job. It's one of our vision initiatives that we want to see churches planted all over the world. And our commitment is that we will be not only uh, a part of planting, our goal is a thousand churches over three years, but we will also work just like Paul's doing here to support and to train up and to disciple those young church planters as well. So all that stuff is happening right now. If you're part of Overlake, you're a part of that process. But the thing I want to talk about real quick is these four guys, right? Artemis and Tychicus and uh, Zenos and Apollos. Um, who are they? At at the simplest level, they're followers of Jesus Christ, just like you. These guys, they were pagans. They were far from God. And then God's love invaded their lives. And then they said, I want to follow you, Jesus. And whatever I have, I'll offer to you so so that your grace can continue to go out, just like you've graced me. And I just wonder, you know, they made it in the Bible. I, I'm always kind of amazed by that. Like, they're in the Bible, so like forever and ever. As long as the Bible's written, those four guys, their names are mentioned. I, I, I kind of think it's funny because it says, I'm either going to send Artemis or Tychicus to you, right? Only one of them was sent, but they're both in the Bible. How's that possible, right? I just wonder if the Bible was being written today. And, 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 you know, Paul's writing it and, and, and Paul's mentioning people from Overlake that he's going to send. Is your name going to be mentioned? Like, are you living your life like that? Like you've raised your hand and said, you know what, God, whatever you want. However I can use the skills that I have, I want to use them for your kingdom. Like if the Bible's being written today, names are going in it, is yours going to be one of them? So I would challenge you, right? If you're a follower of Jesus today, I want to challenge you. Live that life. Live that life where you're always looking outside. Where you're always looking out. How can the grace that has transformed your life impact the lives of others? And I want to close with a story. It's kind of a simple story. Maybe some of you have heard something like this before. But it's the story of a man. uh, He was taking a swim at a particularly treacherous part of the coast. And he began to get caught in a riptide. He began to to struggle. And he was in danger of drowning. When a person on the shore saw him struggling, dove in, grabbed him, and saved his life. And the two of them were there talking then on the shore. And they realized that this shoreline happened to be particularly treacherous. And so they thought, you know what? We should band together and we should begin to work diligently so that any swimmers that would pass by here, they would be safe. And if they, if they start to struggle, if they start to drown, we will save them. And so they, they came up with this idea. We're going to start a thing called the Lifehouse. And they, they put up a little shack there to keep them uh, themselves kind of, you know, out of the elements. And they begin to watch. And when people would struggle there on that particular part of the coast, they would save them. And it was a beautiful thing. And, and people who were saved started giving their testimonies. And other people started hearing this. And they started kind of joining in. Hey, I want to be a part of the Lifehouse. And, and everybody started coming. Then these guys started offering classes. Like good ways to effectively save people from the treacherous waters. And, and, and people started uh, you know, coming in. And they were all excited about this success. They thought it was a movement. 
And so they did a capital campaign and they built this rec center. They called it the Life House. And they were so excited about what was going on. All these people coming in and they were doing classes on how to be good savers and how to watch the, the waters diligently. And, and they offered, you know, Starbucks coffee and there were foosballs tables and top pot donuts and, and all this stuff going on in, in the Life House. And, and it was so cool. And everybody loved it. They loved being a part of the Life House. And nobody noticed exactly when it happened. There was no alarm that sounded. They were having such a good time together in that safe place that it just slipped their minds. Now, it was so good and it was so fun and it was warm and festive on the inside that eventually they just forgot to watch the waters on the outside. And the life house was no longer a life house, just a clubhouse. And people drowned right outside their doors, but nobody on the inside seemed to care. Overlake, this will never happen to us. It is a particularly insidious type of agoraphobia, which causes church people to focus inward and to do all of their community inward and all of their care inward, and all of their conversation inward, forgetting that people on the outside are people Jesus is dying to save, literally. Friends, let us commit to living a life that continues to push the parameters of how we bring God's love to those who consider themselves far from it. Let's live lives of goodness Not because we're trying to earn God's love, but because his grace has so lavishly been poured out on us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do commit ourselves to that life. We commit ourselves to continuing to allow ourselves to be transformed by your grace. To allow ourselves to be so joyful because of it and so thankful because of it that we cannot wait to share your grace with those who might never have seen it, who might never have heard it, who might never have known that it is power for their lives, that it is, uh, it's forgiveness for their lives, it is, it's love for their lives, and it's hope for eternity. And God, make us a committed body of believers, a part of your family that would always be open to bringing the good news wherever it is that you call us to go. And right now, Lord, I just just want to give an opportunity for any here who are just checking this whole Christianity thing out, who who don't know about eternity, who, who aren't confident of your love for them. My prayer is that they would, just by the invitation of the Holy Spirit, they would simply say yes to you. That they would say something like, yes, Jesus, I, I place my trust in you. I believe in you. I I receive your spirit into my life. I confess that I have, I've sinned. I've gone my own way. But I ask that you would be with me and that you would help me follow you today and and the rest of the days of my life. And God, I want to thank you for any who have prayed that prayer this morning. And I, I want to just ask that you would allow those of us who are followers of yours to continue to pray that prayer every day of our lives that you would find us faithful to bringing your grace everywhere we go. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.